and welcome. This is the What If I Told You podcast, a show where we string you along week to week just because we can. We have the power. Yeah, we do. And don't forget it. We run the show. That's right. Check out our TikTok, our Instagram, our Facebook, our email. Send us a DM. Tell us if you like us or not. Do those sorts of things. Yeah. And if you're going to insult us, please be clever about it. Please. We are recording part two of Maura Murray right after recording part one. So there is nothing new to report. Mm -hmm. We are still drinking the same coffee, which is a fucking win for me because I usually chug mine. Yeah, we are really nursing the coffee this morning yeah mine is very watered down at this point and starting to separate so i think i am done with it yeah um this is the upside of getting like the nitro cold brew because there's no ice right involved and somehow it stays relatively cold weird there must be some properties in coffee that allow that to happen there's like some chemical thing happening in the nitro cold brew that just keeps it cold cold enough to continue to drink Mm -hmm. i do want to shout out to starbucks though real quick we we talked a little bit of not a ton of shit on starbucks we did a little in the last episode so i'm gonna shout out their sip through lid we love it i am so down for their sip through lid yep it's it's a great width it's a great width. It has the perfect lip mm-hmm. to, like, fit the, your mouth. The perfect lip-to-lip. The lip-to-lip ratio is perfection. Love it. I need every coffee establishment to away with the straw, mm-hmm. do the sip-through lid. With this specific mouth opening. Yes. I'm sure that Starbucks does not have a patent on the shape. I don't... I just don't think that I yeah. is really possible. I don't fully know. But you can do a variation of this. Absolutely. You you can you can do this, please. Get on it. Do it. We might as well just do the recap and then get right into it. Yeah, we don't need to beat around the bush today. No. Um, so just a quick recap, and also if you haven't listened to episode one, please do that before listening to episode two because that only makes sense. Obviously, don't be a weirdo about it. Yeah, unless you just enjoy chaos. In which case, do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, But a quick recap. We started our descent into the extremely murky waters of Maura Murray disappearing. We left off in the days before the accident on February 9th, 2004, and the last sighting of Maura. Um, She had just wrecked her dad's car after a party with her friends Kate Markopoulos and Sarah Altheory. All very sus things happening at once. There's a lot of mystery happening. Is it relevant to her disappearance? Maybe. Maybe not. It could all have literally no bearing on her disappearance at all. Right. All righty. So it's February 9th, 2004. The first person Mora contacted was Billy, who was her boyfriend. She sent him an email at 1 p.m. and said the following. 
I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking too much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, stud. After this, she seemingly packed up her dorm. At least a lot of her stuff was boxed up. So when her room was later searched, campus police discovered that most of her belongings were in boxes and all of the art had been removed from her walls. So it's not clear whether Mora packed them that day, but police at the time said that she had packed between Sunday night and Monday morning. We're not really sure how the police could possibly know when she packed up these boxes. But some point out that it was so close to the beginning of the semester that it's totally plausible that Mora just simply hadn't unpacked yet. I know I hate unpacking. Right. It's the worst. Honestly, this point I think is really compelling because the start college semesters, like the the spring semester doesn't it's not like high school where you go back to school on like january 4th Mm -hmm. college usually doesn't start until like the third week of january i think my spring semester started like january 24th or something so this is february 9th this is two and a half weeks yeah so yeah she could have just been putting it off yeah i mean if this was her freshman year, then maybe it would have been weird because you usually arrive before the rest of campus freshman year. And there's excitement. And there's the excitement setting up your dorm. But she's a junior. Yeah. She doesn't give a fuck anymore. Right. Like, she's there to get her degree and get the fuck out. Exactly. So the fact that her shit was packed that close to the start of the semester means nothing to me. Yeah. I can see that. So... Um, What I do think is weird, though, that on top of the boxes was a printed email to her boyfriend um, indicating that they were having trouble in their relationship. Yes. Um, I don't know that the contents of that email that was printed is actually out there. I have not found anything where it says explicitly what it says, but I think it does indicate that he cheated on her. Weird to have that laying about. Yeah. I don't know what the what the point of printing it would be. I just feel like it's another one of those things in this case that doesn't help anything add up at all. No. No. I mean, maybe she printed it because she was going to... Sh- well, if it's an email she sent, she wouldn't need to show it to anyone. Or even if it was an email she received, I mean, y- yeah. you have access to it still. Yeah, I guess this is 2004, and we don't know if she had a laptop or a desktop. That's true. And she's not going to pull it up on her phone. Yeah. So maybe she did want to print it and take it to Billy and be like, hey, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, maybe. Her phone and internet searches show that she was calling places for lodgings in the White Mountains, um, or at least in that general area. She even got MapQuest directions to the Berkshires and to Burlington, Vermont. One of the places she called was about renting a condo in Bartless, New Hampshire, um, which was a place that her family vacationed at in the past. The call only lasted about three minutes and Mora didn't actually end up renting the condo. At about 1.13 p.m. on February 9th, Mora called one of her fellow nursing students 
It isn't known for sure, but there is speculation that Mora needed to return a set of scrubs or a lab coat to this person. Mora also submitted some homework assignments and then sent out an email to her professors stating that she would not be in clinic or class due to a death in her family, and she would contact them when she returned. And this email went out at 1.24 p.m. Her family would later say that there was no death in the family. Now, on the death in the family excuse to get out of class, it is a little extreme to say someone died, but I have sent an email to a professor to get out of class and be like, I have a family emergency I have to deal with. Right. So... It's fairly innocuous that she said there's a death in the family. I think some people like to delve and parse it out and find a deeper meaning. Is the death in the family? Is she alluding to her death? Stop it. That's unnecessary. She wants to get out of class for the entire week. And she just... She just picked a lie she felt like is serious enough to get her out of class for a full week and one that's kind of a touchy subject that her professors are probably not going to ask follow-up questions on. Yeah, exactly. In college, you don't have to provide proof, really. You don't have to show them, like, the obituary listing. If you say someone in your family died, they're probably not going to ask any follow-up questions. No. They're just going to be like, you're an adult, fucking handle it. Right. I've said I have a family emergency before (laughs) when I just didn't want to go because it's vague enough to not. Sometimes I feel like it might be bad karma to say there's a death in my family. So I go with emergency because everyone's definition of emergency is different. Like maybe the emergency is my sister couldn't find a babysitter and so now I have to babysit. That's true. And some people's definition of emergency is the hospital visit, you know? Yeah, but no one's going to (laughs) ask. Nobody's going to ask. They just say, "Um, I hope everything is okay. See you next class. Right. So, I get what she's doing here. At 2.05 p.m., Mora called, like, a sort of a hotline number to a recorded line providing hotel information for Stowe, Vermont. Stowey? I don't know. I think it's Stowe. This call lasted about five minutes. At 2.18 p.m., she called Billy and left him a voicemail saying that they would talk later. She packed her car. She loaded it with clothes, toiletries, her textbooks, and birth control. Around 3.30, she left campus. There hadn't been any classes that day um, because they had been canceled due to a snowstorm. Aha! I knew that I had read that there was a snowstorm recently. Yeah. Confirmation. At 3.40 p.m., she withdrew $280 from the ATM, and this was caught on CCTV, and she was alone at the ATM. She then went to a liquor store nearby and spent about $40 on liquor. She bought Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franzia. Security footage from the store also showed that she was alone. This is a lot of liquor, by the way. That is a lot. And I also am kind of confused at why she's buying Bailey's and Kahlua, because usually they kind of serve similar purposes. Yeah. I think maybe Kahlua is a little bit more coconutty, but essentially they're both like a creamy alcohol. The same thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So sometime after this, um, at least at some point in the same day, Mora went to the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles to pick up an accident report or to pick up accident report forms. And this is presumably associated with wrecking her dad's car. That seems obvious. After all of these stops, Mora leaves Amherst. So probably between 4 and 5 p.m. This is when she took Interstate 91 northbound. The last recorded use of her cell phone was at 4.37 p.m. when she checked her voicemail. I When I <laughs> was reading this and it talked about like calling her voicemail, because that's how it was phrased in the article I pulled this from, calling your voicemail, uh, it made me laugh because... I mean, do people even have voicemail anymore? Well, I mean, we do, but we don't have to call the number anymore. When I got my own phone line, like, six years ago or something, I never set up my voicemail. So you can't leave a voicemail for me. I think mine just, like, is the automated phone number that you hear Mm -hmm. I don't pick up. I elected to not have a voicemail box set up so when you call me and I don't answer it says this person does not have a voicemail box goodbye yeah (laughs) and I was like hell yeah that's what's up my dad has tried numerous times to leave me a voicemail and then I'll talk to him eventually and he's like why don't you have a voicemail set up I'm like dad it's 20 fucking 20 do not leave me a voicemail I'm not gonna listen to it send me a text if you if it's something that I need to know immediately, send me a text. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, just wait. I'll call you back. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no evidence that Mora had communicated to anyone where she was going um, or that she had settled on a destination. She's just flying by the seat of her pants at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, honestly... The, all of the things that she does that day before she leaves campus don't seem, like, really indicative of anything to me. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? It doesn't. So, we're not going to... It's so easy when you're going through, like, just the facts of this case and, like, the times. It's so easy to get hung up on, like... Talking about a theory about that, it's, like... It's too much. It's so much, and it's real self-control to not get in the fucking weeds here. hmm So, I just want to appreciate that for a second. We have not gotten in the weeds too bad. <laughs> not bad at all. Our first, the part one of this, the unedited version, it clocked in at, like, one hour, five minutes. So... That's fucking, that's on it. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I'm patting <laughs> ourselves on the back. <laughs> okay, so now the accident. Here it is. A little after 7 p.m., February 9th, as Mora is driving down Route 112 or Wild and Road, I don't know which one it officially is. Most people, I feel like, refer to it as Route 112. I agree. Um, so there's a very tight curve in the road. This is in the mountains. So the roads are, like, windy as shit. So dangerous in normal conditions. And this is 
right after a snowstorm had hit. So and it's dark. And it's dark. It's treacherous. Yeah. Mora lost control of her car, obviously, and went off the road and into a snowbank. Um, the scene of the accident was located near the town of Woodsville, New Hampshire, and the town of Haverhill, New Hampshire. So the police who responded were from Haverhill. And I believe the first responder was Cecil Smith. I don't think I put his name in here anywhere. (laughs) Really? Yeah, which is weird. But Cecil Smith is the first responding officer to the scene. Um, But not only did Mora run into a snowbank, but she essentially went through the snowbank and hit a tree. And obviously, the snowbank is not what caused the bulk of the damage. The tree is. Right. So I feel like if she would have just gone into the snowbank, she probably would have been able to drive away. Yeah. She might have needed to be pulled out of the ditch, but I feel like after that, it would have been, she would have been able to drive away and been fine. Yeah, I wouldn't have crunched her car, I don't feel like. No. Not majorly. No. Especially because I doubt she was going crazy fast. There's just no way she could have been. No. Road conditions were not ideal, and with those curvy roads, she was probably not driving insanely fast, and if she would not have encountered the tree, she probably would have been able to get out. Yeah. So, she hits the car, and this is where we come in with Faith Westman. She's our first witness. She lived really close to the scene and heard the crash. And looked out of her window and saw Mora's car in the snowbank with the car pointing west. So Mora was traveling east and ended up facing the opposite direction as a result of the crash. I'm guessing maybe she spun out, her car whipped around, and then... I'm doing hand motions like crazy here. Yeah, she was in the right (laughs) lane facing the wrong way. Correct. Right. The police basically ascertained that that's what happened. She spun when she hit it, whatever, based on car tracks and marks in the pavement, how the car was facing, all the things that they look at when they go to the scene of an accident. Which is weird that you could hit a snowbank, hit a tree, and then spin out of the snowbank and ditch to get back on the road. My guess is that she spun first. Yeah. I mean, she had she had to have. Yeah, that's my assumption, is that she came around the curve, spun like this, spun through both lanes, and then hit coming west. Yeah. That was my assumption. It's a crazy accident, I feel like. Yeah, accidents are weird. Um, I feel like you guys need a visual of what I just did with my arm. We can post pictures of the things. Yeah. We'll post pictures of ourselves with the arms doing (laughs) the things. It'll look really cute. So, anyway... Faith Westman calls Grafton County Sheriff at 727 to report the accident. According to the 911 dispatcher report, Faith Westman told operators that she had actually seen a man smoking a cigarette in the car. But (laughs) she would later say she hadn't actually seen a man. She had just seen a red glow that she assumed was a cigarette, but could have been from a phone. 
That's some good eyesight. I feel like I could have, if I was in my house looking at a car accident, I probably could have seen a a red glow. Any person probably could have seen the glow. Right. But I, I think she, sometimes your brain creates things. Absolutely. And I think that's what happened here. So she, she does come back later and say, I don't know that it was actually a man. I just saw a glow that I assumed was a cigarette. Which, I mean, isn't, like, too suspicious or anything. No. And this is 2004. She's, like, older. Yeah. It's more likely that she would assume a cigarette than a phone. Right. So, that happens at 727. Um, Faith also, while she's looking out, sees Butch Atwood drive by in his school bus and stop at the scene for a few moments before heading on to his house because he lives pretty close to Faith Westman about 100 yards from the scene. Butch Atwood, the school bus driver, was actually on his way home when he saw the accident, the aftermath of the accident. Um, He noticed that Mora was walking around the vehicle, so he pulled up alongside her car open the, the school bus door. He doesn't ever actually get out of the bus, um, but he has a conversation with Mora, and he noted that she didn't look injured. He offered to call 911 for her, but she, quote, pleaded with him not to, stating that she had already called AAA. Um, one thing that the Missing Mora Murray podcast points out about this interaction is that Butch is offering to make a call for her, but not offering her an escape from the situation. Yeah, like, I live right over here. Why don't you come in and get warm while we call the cops? Exactly. Some point to her refusal of Butch as evidence that she wouldn't be willing to get into a car with someone. However, Butch wasn't offering to take her away from the scene. So what Missing Maura Murray points out is that if another car had pulled up and was offering her an escape that she may have actually taken it. Yeah. Because he's offering her police when she's probably looking to get away from the scene. Yeah. So all we know really about Butch Atwood's interaction with Mora is his statement. Not that he's not trustworthy, but you know what there's that. Yeah. And he's dead now. And he's dead now. Um, But at this point, Butch leaves the scene and goes home. He has stated that he thought Mora was likely lying about calling AAA because cell service in the area was not good. So he called 911 at about 7.43 p.m. He could not see Mora's car from his house, but he did state that several cars had passed by while he was making his call. Interestingly, Faith Westman would later say that there were no other cars that passed by except Butch Atwood while she was looking out her window. Weird. Weird. All right. According to the official police logs, Haverhill police arrived at the scene at 7.46 p.m. So at this point, Mora is gone and there is no one in or around this car. Yes. Recap the timeline a little bit. 7.27 p.m., Faith calls. Sometime after this is when Butch arrives at the scene. At 7.43, Butch calls. At 7.46, the police arrive. So, 
it's very difficult to say exactly how much time there was for Mora to disappear. But most reporters of this case give her about a 10-minute window from the time she talks to Butch to the time that police arrive. Which means that Butch would have had to have arrived on scene, talked with Mora, drove home, get into his house, and make his call in about nine minutes. So between the time of 7.36 p.m. and 7.46 p.m., Mora vanishes. At this point, police are looking around the car and eventually get into the car. It's noted that um, it was inoperably damaged and there was a white rag in the goddamn tailpipe. Who put the rag in the tailpipe? This is the thing that keeps me up at night. The rag in the tailpipe is like the biggest thing associated with this case i think it's like the line who put the rag in the tailpipe oh my god okay (laughs) so obviously this doesn't make any fucking sense okay listen it just simply does not but fred mora's dad has stated that he actually told mora to do that if her car started smoking as it would diffuse the smoke so she wouldn't get pulled over. If any male figure in my life, my boyfriend, my brother, my dad, Dakota told me to put a rag in my tailpipe, I would be like, are you trying to kill me? I don't know if that would actually harm anyone, but that is the weirdest shit I've ever heard. I have no idea why that, because first of all, it's not going to stay there. Unless you, if you wad, I think, okay, I think there are pictures of this, which we will find photos and post some shit, but I don't think it was like wadded up into a ball and stuffed in the tailpipe because then the car wouldn't run. Right. So it's like just hanging out of there. So what is... With a rag just simply, like, sat in there enough to keep its balance on the exit of the tailpipe, what is that doing for her? I, first of all, I don't know for sure. Because I I don't know a ton about cars. I could ask my dad uh, or my grandpa. This is where Chip comes in. Or Chip. My grandpa's a mechanic. He would probably know. Dakota might know. He we, does uh, his own work on his cars. We but need to interview them. We need to interview them. We're, you know what? We'll make a TikTok about the rag and the tailpipe because we don't talk about it much after this. It's kind I feel like the rag and the tailpipe is a red herring, but whatever. Some people like to say that she stopped at a gas station in Haverhill and somebody put the rag in her tailpipe, but it's not good. My thing is, how did it stay there? That's what I'm saying. If it's just sat in there, if it's not wadded and stuffed. Exactly. How is it in there? Was it her attempt of doing what her father told her? Mm-hmm. But if it's not to get the car to start, it's to simply stop the smoke so she doesn't get pulled over by police? Yes. this is That's what they talk about on Missing Maura Murray. Whenever, um, like, so your, your exhaust pipe. When smoke comes out of your exhaust pipe, like I'm thinking like dark smoke, 
Yeah. Whenever you look at it when your car is not running, it looks like some shit settles, like soot settles on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So maybe Fred Murray is thinking if there's a rag there, the soot is going to catch on the rag and it's not going to actually create smoke from the car. Or at least it's going to reduce the amount of smoke. So she's not going to get pulled over by police. Why would it be so bad if she got pulled over by police? I don't know. I mean, maybe people just, you know, it's inconvenient. It, maybe he doesn't want her to accumulate a bunch of tickets he's going to have to pay yeah. for. I think the it this isn't something that, like... I get caught up in. Right. It just simply doesn't make sense to me. It simply doesn't make sense. And police have also... So Fred Murray issued the official statement that he told her to put the rag in the tailpipe. And then police have also kind of bolstered that by saying that they're... Maybe they say this because of what Fred says, but they said that they know that the rag came from Maura's trunk. So it could be that Fred's like, yeah, that... He identified it, so that's why they say that, or... Maybe there were other rags that looked just like that in her trunk, so they associate them as going together. I don't know. Well, besides the rag and the fucking tailpipe, (laughs) both the airbags were deployed, so this indicates that the collision was sufficient enough to make these go off. Mm -hmm. Um, And the force of airbags can potentially cause injury. The driver's side windshield was cracked from the inside, indicating that Mora may have hit her head on it. The point of contact may have been a little too high for Mora's head to have reached, leading some to believe that a different person was driving. Mm-hmm. But I mean, impact you could raise. Yeah, if you're being thrown around. Maybe she didn't have her seatbelt on, so she immediately is lifted. Yeah, I mean, if you're driving around with a rag in your tailpipe, you could definitely be the type of person who doesn't wear a seatbelt. Yeah, and I think in 2004, more people did drive around without a seatbelt on. Yeah, because nothing dinged at them back then. Exactly. Cars didn't scream at you. (laughs) Yeah. Dakota's Jeep? Fuck. Like, my car has, like, a little ding. It's like, ding, ding. Mine is a constant noise. That's Dakota's Jeep. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm like, oh my fuck, fine, okay. I, I haven't even put the car in drive yet. <laughs> Please. Before they were able to get into the car, they realized that all of the doors were locked. The crash had pushed the radiator into the fan, rendering the car inoperable. There were red wine stains found inside and outside of the car. Specifically, there was an area of red liquid found underneath Mora's car, which appeared as if someone had poured some wine out. Law enforcement confirmed this spot was identified, but refused to speculate on how or why the puddle of wine got there. I think it's weird that it's under the car, first of all. Why is it under the car? It would be hard, like, even if you're trying to get rid of something, it would be hard to, like, Get your arm under and pour, yeah. especially a box of wine. Yeah, I'm, yeah. And there's also, like, um, some people say that there's an empty, like, s- soda bottle, like a 20-ounce soda bottle that yeah. smelled like wine that and that she was drinking it while she was driving, which maybe she was, I don't know, and that that's what she dumped out. But at this point... <laughs> There's wine fucking everywhere. Right. Why? Who cares if there's wine in that bottle? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. 
All right. So these are the items found in her car. Alcohol. We've already talked about that. Mm-hmm. So there was an empty beer bottle. And then, of course, the damaged box of red wine, which had been previously opened. Um, tab one was missing from the box, but tab two was still intact. As if maybe she pulled the tab to pour out some wine into a container to drink while she was driving. Right. Um, her triple A card was in there. Blank accident reporting forms. Like we said earlier, these are presumably to detail the events from her prior accident and her dad's car. Black leather gloves, makeup, diamond jewelry, CDs, a book about mountain climbing in the White Mountains, which was her presumed destination. Two sets of driving directions printed from MapQuest, one of them for Burlington, Vermont, and the other for Stowe, Vermont. Her textbooks, her birth control pills, some were used, obviously, of course, um, sleeping pills, which were reportedly Tylenol PM, which is, I mean, not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, Tylenol PM is not sleeping pills. No, this is not Ambien that they found. Yeah, I whenever people just say sleeping pills and then you find out it's Tylenol PM, it's kind of like, really? Those are not the same. No, I mean, any type of, I mean, especially ibuprofen or Tylenol, there is always a PM version. Yeah, this is over-the-counter shit that you can get at the store. Like they have kids Tylenol PM. Yeah, you do not need a prescription for these sleeping pills. Let's just call it Tylenol PM. Yeah. I mean, for people like you and I get headaches, I probably have a headache two or three times a week, Mm -hmm. just always. Right. But migraine, I don't have them as often anymore. I used to have them probably like a full migraine at least two or three times a month. I don't have them as much anymore. But when I used to get migraines, Tylenol PM would be the only way I would actually be able to sleep. Yeah. Because of the headache. And the only way to get through a migraine is to go to sleep. Exactly. So Tylenol PM, duh. I don't know why people get hung up on it. People think... She took, she had the Tylenol PM with her and that is really shows that she was probably going up there to commit suicide. No, it fucking doesn't. No. If that was legit prescription strength sleeping pills, maybe you would have me on your side, but not Tylenol PM. Maybe not even then, because if it was one of her prescriptions, why wouldn't she have it with her? True. You know? And why would she leave it in her car and not take it with her? Exactly. When she ran from the scene. Uh, Her favorite stuffed animal was also in there. A book called Not Without Peril, which was about hiking in the White Mountains, given to her by her boyfriend, Billy. A suitcase filled with clothes and um, the Diet Coke bottle that reportedly had red wine. Next are some items that are presumably missing from her vehicle. Mm -hmm. Cell phone. License. Credit and debit cards which there has never been any activity on them since. Car keys, most of the liquor that was previously purchased, and her black backpack. Yes, and the receipt for the liquor that she purchased that day was in the car. So they know that she had purchased Bailey's Kahlua Vodka and Franzia. And I think the only thing left was the Franzia in the in the car. Yeah. So 
obviously this is leading them to suspect that she grabbed the Baileys, the Kahlua, and the vodka. Yeah. Which is a lot of stuff to be grabbing if you're walking. Right. But she did have a backpack. Right. That's true. Um, So she probably just put the liquor in the backpack and ran. Um, But is Bailey's Kahlua and vodka how you make a white Russian? Oh, no. Let's Google it. I feel like that is a white Russian. I'm thinking of the dude. Ingredients. Vodka. Kahlua. Heavy cream. Okay, so Bailey's. Yeah. It's just a little more alcohol content. Yeah. Okay, so she's got, she wants to have white Russians. Whatever. It, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I had a thought that I was going to include right here at this point, and now I lost it. Now the investigation and the search. At 12.36 p.m. on February 10th, uh, a be on the lookout report was issued from Mora. So it's essentially like an APB or what have you. Yeah. APB is issued at noon the next day. She's reported that she was wearing a dark coat, jeans, and had a black backpack. Um, a voicemail was left for her dad at home on his answering machine at 3.20 p.m. stating that her car had been found abandoned. He was working out of state and did not receive this call. At 5 p.m., Mora's older sister, I believe that this is Julie, um, contacted her father to tell him that Mora was missing. He then contacted the Haverhill police and was told that if Mora was not reported safe by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department would start a search. And so at 5.17 p.m. on February 10th, uh, Mora was first referred to as missing by the Haverhill Police. On February 11th, Mora's father arrived before dawn in Haverhill. At 8 a.m. on the 11th, New Hampshire Fish and Game, the Murrays, and others began to search the area. A police dog tracked Morris scent from one of the gloves a hundred yards east from the vehicle, but lost the scent at that point. So this made the police think that she had traveled a hundred yards east from the accident and then was picked up into a car, and that's why her scent stops there. Has to be. It has to be. Yeah. They also didn't find footprints in the snow leading in any direction into the woods. Right. Um, so at 5 p.m. on the 11th, Mora's boyfriend, Billy, and his parents arrive in Haverhill. He was obviously interrogated by police um, and then was joined by his parents for questioning. And at 7 p.m., they said they believed Mora came to the area to either run away or attempt suicide. Now, her family believed that this was unlikely. They maintained to this day that she met with foul play. Um, and Billy Roush, her boyfriend, he was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. So he was interrogated and investigated 
Obviously, he's the boyfriend. Of course. They're always the first suspect. But he was cleared because I think his CO was like, no, he was here in Oklahoma. Yeah. So he had turned off his cell phone while he was flying from Oklahoma to Haverhill, which you still have to do to this day. And at some point he received a voicemail that he believed was the sound of Mora sobbing. The call was traced to a calling card issued to the American Red Cross. Very weird. Yeah, super weird. They've never found out the actual um, basis of this call, but he believes it was Mora. She never said anything. There were no words. It was just sobbing. Yeah. So... So there is part two. That is part two. And again, if you have seen Mora or anyone that you think might be Mora or have any information regarding Mora, you can call the New Hampshire cold case unit at 603-271-2663 or... I didn't say this in the previous episode. You could also call New Hampshire State Police at 603-223-3860. You can also email them at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. And we will put all of this in our sources as well. Yeah. Um, but that is part two. And... I haven't been approved yet for the official Missing Mora Facebook page, which I 100% thought I was in, but apparently I'm not. I had to submit, like, the yeah questions or whatever. So, if there's more information on that, by the time we record part three, I will include that in the end of the episode. So, there's that. Okay. So, Ariel, you're the best rate review subscribe share us whatever you can now uh rate five stars on apple pods and also on spotify so do that um get a instagram and follow us on instagram and um until next week when we go over the theories and get wild please be kind to each other and stay weird goodbye bye